Hello everybody and welcome back to the Palace of Glittering Delights. Could be about anything, but not this one, which is about something specifically. Specifically, it's about prolific triple threat producer, writer, director, Donald P. Bellasurio. He's one of the most influential creators on American television. Bellasurio applied his trade in the 1970s for two other hugely prolific producers. Firstly, as a writer and director on Stephen J. Cannell's WW2 drama, Baba Black Sheep, and then as producer, writer, and director on Glenn A. Larson's space opera Battlestar Galactica. In both cases, Belisario developed his character-led brand of writing and his peculiarly linear approach to plotting. From there, he created a number of memorable shows. Magnum P.I. was a worldwide smash hit, but sadly his 1982 Indiana Jones-inspired action series Tales of the Gold Monkey would last only one season. His next show in 1983, Erwolf, was more successful, and his next project would become probably his most beloved. Taking one of his ideas from an old Battlestar Galactica episode he'd written, in which Captain Apollo was dispatched to a planet by a race of celestial beings to avert a nuclear war, this script saw Apollo appear to the people of the planet as someone completely different, and his guide, John, played by Knight Rider's Edward Mulher, could only be seen and heard by Apollo. He added a time travel element and a dash of the 1978 Warren Beatty movie Heaven Can Wait, mixed it all up in a bag and called it Quantum Leap. Quantum Leap is the very definition of high concept and is best described by its opening saga cell. Theorising that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett, played by Scott Bakula, stepped into the Quantum Leap accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey was Al, played by Dean Stockwell, an observer from his own time who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. on the table. I have to be brutally honest. I shouldn't like Quantum Leap. 
for one thing, it's that type of US science fiction show, a standard drama series, but with a tenuous sci-fi element that I typically don't like. Secondly, it's incredibly sentimental, something that normally makes me run for the hills. But Quantum Leap hits the soft spot. It is sentimental, but it's beautifully played by Bakula, who successfully carries the series with seemingly effortless class and charm. Dean Stockwell is also magnificent in support, bringing humour and charisma to a role that could quite easily have been nothing more than exposition. Talking about Quantum Leap came about through a very circuitous route. Dr. Bill Robinson. Hello. Hello. I was just waiting for you to see if you would jump in there. <laughs> Dr. Bill Robinson first suggested to me talking about Quantum very kindly, out of the blue, sent me two Quantum Leap novels, and that started my wheels turning. Dr. Bill is the co-host of Back to the Bins on the Two True Freaks Network. Say hello, Bill. Hello, everyone. It's good to have you. Thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you. At godly hour. Oh, no, that, no, no problem at all. And when talking about Quantum Leap, one other name immediately leapt to mind. Massive, massive Quantum Leap fan and views from the long box maestro mr michael bailey hello michael <laughs> are you calling me fat no I'm just <laughs> no wait 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 you're british you would call me porky that's right uh, uh, the port lee port lee so this is a first for me i have never hosted a show that has guests up but if i was gonna host a show with guests up which i am i'm glad that it's you two oh, which it is you. so it all worked out very well uh, we, I appreciate you having me. Uh, like you said, I love this show, and you and I have had more than <laughs> one or ten or fifty conversations on Facebook about Quantum Leap. So. Yeah, well, that's when Bill said, let's do, do you fancy doing a Quantum Leap show? I had considered doing a Quantum Leap show for Palace, but it hadn't quite gelled into what I wanted it to be. But then when he suggested that, and then I thought of you, and it all just came together two days ago which is probably the quickest turnaround for a transatlantic show I've ever been involved with. There's been a oh. lot of a lot of cramming and prepping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Re- tell me about it. Um, rewatching things I haven't seen in a long time. <laughs> okay, so the series generally, as I mentioned in the introduction, is, is the very epitome of high concept. The fact that they were able to squeeze what this show is into that 30-second saga cell is quite an astonishing feat of writing. Because one of the things certainly I found when trying to tell people about the show was, well, it's this guy, and he keeps leaping back in time. But he doesn't actually physically leap back in time. He occupies the body of another person. And they still see him as that other person, but we see him as Scott Bakula, which is fortunate, otherwise Bakula wouldn't have a very big role in the series. And everyone just kind of glazes over at this point. Before you even get <laughs> to the idea that he's, his partner in all of this is a hologram that no one else can see, <laughs> and that no one else can hear, and suddenly they're like, what? But surprisingly, it works. I think by its very nature, uh, you know, and, and being and when it came on, uh, in, you know, on television, it was like the epitome of episodic television. Uh, even though there were what we would now call mythology episodes, it was okay. This week he's here. Next week he's there. It's you know, it's kind of like the Incredible Hulk meets Heaven Can Wait. I mean, it's it, it, it 
where you know Doctor Beckett travels from town to town seeking to write seeking to write once went wrong could easily be, and so Doctor Banner is believed to be dead, and he must let the world think that he is dead. So right, right. It, but but we could also have period pieces. You could have a fifties, sixties, seventies, and that and that was what was good about it too. Yeah, in the nineties, which was generally quite a nostalgia fueled decade anyway it seemed like it landed at exactly the right time to be successful. Like you say, it could have an episode in the 50s and the 60s, or it could do a, a then contemporary, or even on occasion, it could go slightly into the future, which is now our past, as the show was set in 1999. Mm-hmm. Sam stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator in 1999. So, And the theory of the show was, take a piece of string, join the two pieces of string together to create a ball, then scrunch that piece of string up in the palms of your hands and the various different parts of the string are now touching. And if you imagine that to be somebody's lifespan, you can now go along that piece of string touching elements that maybe actually be decades apart. And that was the, I want to use the term scientific theory, but that's quite loose premise behind the show yeah but it sounded good i mean you know like when if you have the right person explaining it like you know scott bacula who is an amazing actor to begin with uh very talented very versatile you know when you have him kind of breaking it down with that kind of kind of small town you know hominess that he had i mean it it worked well and the amazing thing about this show was that it was a mid-season replacement and there are very few shows that started that became as successful as this show did in not only in terms of lasting five seasons, but also in spawning conventions and fan clubs and stuff like that, that started out as something the networks threw on there because something else didn't work out. But also it's so very fondly remembered. Oh God. It, yes. Mm-hmm. It seems that like, despite the fact that it's ratings, I don't know what they were like in the US. You two will be able to tell me that. Over here, it debuted on UK TV on BBC Two. So it wasn't on BBC One. So it wasn't on the primary channel. It debuted at Tuesday the 13th of February 1990. So it was replacing the recently cancelled Moonlighting. And it became a top 10 hit from the channel right from the start. So it was a, a big hit. So the BBC immediately rewarded that by taking it off two episodes into series two and replacing it with Twin Peaks. But when they did, <laughs> but when they brought Quantum Leap back, Twin Peaks had burned brightly, but very, very shortly. And it started with phenomenal ratings that tailed off week to week. And the minute they brought Quantum Leap back, it not only met the ratings of Twin Peaks, it exceeded them. And it's, it's probably one of the most successful U.S imports to this country ever in that it remained in bbc 2s top 10 for its entire run uh, which concluded on the 21st of june 94 so it's it seemed like everybody watched it well and and anytime i post about it on on facebook like people fr- that i'm friends with now people i was friends with in high school uh some of which have some very interesting stories like my friend aaron who babysat Scott Bakula's kids at the time. Cool. Uh, well, his sister lived in the neighborhood next to mine. My friend Larry's mom cleaned for her. I actually had for years Scott Bakula's autograph uh, that she got for me because he came in for Thanksgiving. The fact that I never really w- weaseled my way into an introduction still baffles me to this day. But <laughs> but no, everyone loves this show. I had one of my best friends from high school 
Her name is Debbie. And I introduced her to this show when she was a senior and I was a junior. And it was a ritual. I think Adam Leap came on Tuesday night. Wednesday at lunch, that's what we were talking about. Mm. And just about every friend I had at least watched the show. Some of us were into a little more into it than others. You know, it was one of those things where I, I think if it wasn't Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell and their chemistry together, the show would not have been as successful as it was. You know, it's, no. it, it, it's like the premise, but it really rests on them. Yeah, the, the premise is an excuse for Belisario to talk about the various different political and social ills of the time period that most of the people who are watching it will have grown up in, mm -hmm. in some way. And the vehicle for him to do that was just throwing this time travel element. And it's clear if you watch the early episodes that he hadn't really thought the premise through that much, that he wasn't concerned about that. But it is a show much like the Hulk that, that lives or dies on its lead actor. Now I'm mm -hmm. not dissing on Dean Stockwell because he was magnificent in it. Like I said in the intro, he's charming, he's charismatic. His role could have been show up, explain the plot, smack the thing that he holds in his hand comically every episode <laughs> and then disappear and cash his paycheck. But he brings so much more to it. But this show is all on Bacula's shoulders from beginning to end. Brent Spiner once did an interview. Oh God, back in the early 90s, it was in Starlock magazine where they were talking to him about the role and, and what playing data in, in Star Trek. And he said, I originally didn't want to take it because it seemed quite a limiting role. But now I'm actually of the opinion the only other role on television that is more deeper, gives you more opportunity for expanse than data is Scott Bakula's performance on Quantum Leap. So other actors were noticing what he was doing. And like, like Michael said, he's a very versatile and talented and charismatic and likable leading man. And he's one of those, he's very 50s. He perfectly carries off being hyper-intelligent scientist and guy that can roundhouse kick you. Yes, mm -hmm. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and you never, you never have that thing where you buy Bill Bixby's ultra smart, but put him in a fight scene and you're like, yeah, he's going to get his ass kicked, isn't he? And that's rather the point, too. Yeah. Still, yeah I mean, it was only after he, 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 you know, if you really need a martial arts uh, instructor, you better get Mako, uh, <laughs> you know, do those couple of episodes with him that he actually started looking like he could. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it wasn't until the second season that they introduced that concept. Uh, but I, I think that was necessary because they put Sam in enough physical confrontations that you kind of wanted him to win. And for him to win, he has to know how to fight. Yeah. And it's, mm -hmm. it walks that line quite admirably between violence is not the answer to the problem. And, but sometimes some people just needed good kicking. Yeah. <laughs> And it, it straddles that line very, very well, because you always get the impression that for the most part, Sam Beckett is not a violent man. He's not somebody who's just going to get into a pointless TV fist fight for the sake of it. He will always try and talk his way out of a problem or get them out of a problem by using his brains. But if you're in his face or in the face of the woman of the week, he's going to he's going to beat you down, basically. And on some shows, he actually had, uh, you know, we're talking about the versatility He's he had to play a woman. He had to play older people, younger people. He had to play a monkey. 
in one episode. And he had to sing, and he had to act. I mean, it was just like every, every bit of his theater training came out. Yeah, that uh, was in yeah. the the man from La Mancha uh, one, or when he was Elvis. Oh, or, it, yeah, uh, or uh, where he was when the he pianist. Sung Imagine? When he sung Imagine, uh, where he uh, that was he the played. disco one too, right? I don't know if he. I thought he was he a stuntman in that. One. Yeah, he was a stuntman in that one. He didn't actually sing in that one. That's a great right, episode. but he did. But, he did do some dancing in that one, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yes, but he had to do. He had to mock the seventies, which is quite easy. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, we 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 can look fondly back on disco, but it's only because with the hindsight of it's several it's several decades removed, and uh, we won't like get insulted for doing so. So. No, well, Bacula plays that one perfectly. That's the the second episode of season two, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Which none of us picked Disco Inferno, so we can actually talk about it. He plays it perfectly all the way through the episode. He's like, "Oh, disco, oh, mood rings, oh, polyester shirts," and Al's all, Al's yeah, Al's like, "Sam, this is great," <laughs> and Sam's like, "No, this really isn't any good." No. Well, as Al explains it, I was an astronaut and I went home with a different woman every night. I mean, it's just. <laughs> yeah, they both have very different recollections of what the 70s were. And that's why the show worked with with the two of them. I mean, Sam Beckett's character was supposed to be a little bit older than Bacula was, mm-hmm. but not as old as Dean Stockwell. So he could provide a little bit more background because one of the concepts of the show, and this I thought was a stroke of genius, that. They get around any potential continuity problems by having Sam every leap forget everything. Yes. Except what he needs to know for that episode. Mm-hmm. Unless the plot requires him to not know it. Well, it was the Swiss cheese memory. It was it, yeah. it, it was perfect. I mean it was a it was almost a throwaway line in the pilot. Yeah, because but... from the pilot episode you get the impression that all right, from now on he's gonna remember stuff. And he doesn't. But, and it's it's a perfect premise for a weekly anthology television show. You can just drop in it at any point, and you're in exactly the same position as Sam. Who am I? Where am I? What the hell is going on? Well, one of the things I kind of kick myself on is I could have been a, in, in on the ground floor of this show. You ever have one of those things where you go through something, and then later on in your life you realize that that was kind of pivotal and maybe you should have stuck around a little longer and things would have turned out differently. I remember watching the first couple minutes of the pilot when it first aired. And I was just like, there was this guy, he was kind of in a futuristic car. There was some weird stuff going on in the desert. I'm not really into this. And I changed the channel. So it wasn't until about a year or so later then I'm at my aunt and uncle's in El Paso, Texas, and they had Quantum Leap Week. Uh, it was during the summer. I guess they were trying to... They were either trying to drum up interest in the show or they were just taking advantage of the fact that the show was popular. And basically every night they showed a, a, an episode of Quantum Leap, which NBC really didn't do all that often uh, you know, with its shows. And I, was, I asked my aunt what it was, and she explained it every night that week. I sat down and watched it. And shortly after that, about a year or so after that, USA Network started showing the reruns. And from there, I was just hooked. I mean, just completely and utterly addicted to this show. Yeah. Mm. I I have a confession to make, and you may find this hard to believe. I never saw a first-run Quantum Leap episode on NBC. 
when I only started to catch it was when I was in the Navy because from 89 to 93, um, when the show was on, I was in the Navy from 88 to 94. So I missed out when it first came on because I had a huge disconnect being at, you know, sea and doing other stuff and driving up, being all over the country. You don't really catch a lot of TV. About the only thing I was able to stay up on was uh, was Star Trek. So I missed a lot of Quantum Leap, and it wasn't until about, like you said, when it was on USA was when I started to see the reruns. And I'm like, what is this show? And I, and I would watch it as much as I could when I could. Then when I got out of the service, a good friend of mine – you know, he said, yeah, Quantum Leap finished up, and I found out from him, he had videotaped the entire series off of USA and NBC as it was ending, and the first month I was out of the Navy, I binge-watched the entire series before binge-watching was a thing, and you could do it easily, like you can now, with Netflix and and Amazon and Hulu and everything else. So basically, while I was unemployed for the first month, I just sat around and watched. I watched the entire series through twice, <laughs> and that was my life. Get up, look for a job. All right, that's done. All right, Quantum Leap, let's go. Now, to be fair, you can't binge watch the entire series on Netflix right now because for some reason, all the episodes some aren't there. Episodes aren't there, like yeah. the ones I really want to watch. Yeah, I know. Is that I, something to do with the rights for the music, do you think? Probably. Or whatever deal Netflix... My theory is is that whatever deal Netflix worked out with the people that control Quantum Leap, they want you to buy that box set. So... <laughs> mm -hmm. Which I really need to, because the only season I have on DVD is the first one. Uh, so that, you know, that leaves quite the hole, but, you know... It's, it's really weird. Buying DVDs is now becoming a foreign concept to me. Like, I don't do it. Like, like, 10 years ago, I was religious about, like, getting all the movies and stuff. And when Smallville started coming out on DVD and, and other shows I liked, now it's just like, I'll get to that. There'll be a sale at some point, and it'll be cheap. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much the same way when you hear of people pre-ordering stuff now. And the whole thing going on with Amazon trying to bleed them for more money. I'm always like, I don't pre-order anything anymore. I wait till six months down the line when it's 50% off. Yeah. So, Bill, you were a trendsetter then. Yes, I was big, right. I, I was uh, unemployed. <laughs> what is the show you – what is this Quantum Leap? Well, I had seen the show, but this – and I, I, I was hooked. And and that, that was when I discovered some of the books as well. And it was so – it was so – uh, all the build-up, and, and I knew I was getting closer to the last episodes, and I'm like, well, do I really want to watch? You know, like I would kind of, like, draw it out a little more. I'd watch an episode, then I'd go do a few things, and all right, I'm going to watch another one. I know I'm in the last season now. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, it gets a bit depressing. Well, it? <laughs> oh, it was, it was, it was incredibly depressing, because I followed that last season religiously, and... The day after the episode, the last episode came on, I went in, and I'll never forget, I looked at one of my friends in chorus, and I went, Beth, did you watch it? And she gave the little tear thing. Just like, <laughs> so it was just one of those things where, you know, it wasn't like all through high school, because the series ended when I was a junior. So, But it was such a part of my life for those several years. And I was, I am, I have been 
universally terrible about following television series. You know, I, I will, I'll watch like two or three episodes of something. And then the next week, something will happen. I won't see it the next week after that, something else will happen. I want to see it. And it's almost like the series doesn't exist for me anymore. Like it's like, it's been dropped into a, a black hole or sent off to the phantom zone or something. Mm -hmm. But this was one of those shows like alien nation is a good example of one where, I got hooked and I didn't want to, I didn't want to let go. So it was incredibly depressing when that final episode happened. Mm. Well, before we get to the final episode, let's oh, give yeah. a brief look at the pilot episode. Cause I don't think we can really talk about the series generally without discussing the first episode of the show. The original pilot episode is, is unique in many ways in that it doesn't feel like an episode of Quantum Leap that you remember. When you go back and look at that first season now, it's got quite a different feel to the rest of them, largely because the opening credits are completely different. Mm -hmm. And the pilot show takes it one step further by not having any opening credits. So the, the pilot episode throws you in completely at the deep end. It starts sailing through the clouds, and then Sam wakes up. And oh. you are in the exact same position that he's in of not knowing who he is, where he is, or what he's doing there. One, one quick thing. Until when we talked about doing this show, I never knew that there was different opening credits to the series. Right. Yeah. Because I never saw them until I was like, really? There was different opening credits? Because I always saw the ones that were on USA, and that's the ones that my friend videotaped was all the USA reruns and the last few seasons on NBC to where they had gone to that style of credits as well. So I didn't know that actually Sam Beckett was doing the opening after this show. Uh, so anyway. Yeah, it was really strange. It's really strange going back and watching the first season now when you're so used to those USA intros, like you were saying, where... Basically, every episode began with Scott, with Scott Bakula going, okay, so this is what's going on. Yeah. And saying stuff like, uh, it went a little caca. <laughs> but I would compare this pilot and, and, and throw it up there with some of the best television pilots ever. Mainly because Belisario trusted the audience in a way that a lot of writers and, and TV people don't trust your audience. He didn't spell everything out for you in the first five minutes. You had to watch everything to figure out what was going on. And, and you know, the whole introduction of, of Al was just, it's just beautiful watching now because it's, it's really strange. Like who, like, is he seeing, is this guy crazy? What's going on? And then finally everything spelled out for you and you're like, Oh, okay. That's uh. Okay, very good then. Very. Uh, yeah. right, well, that's, that's that's what I was alluding to in the in the opening. Belisario, for me, he's one of my favorite television producers ever. Mm -hmm. As far as I'm concerned, he's the guy who brought character to American television. Now, I know those people before him, Roy Huggins on Rockford Files and Mag not Mag yeah, Mag not MacGyver, Maverick was doing that. He was very character led in terms of his stories as well but let's be brutally honest there's an awful lot of u.s television from the 60s 70s it's plot driven the characters yeah. are interchangeable you could put them in various different shows glenn a larson and aaron spelling were the kings 
of that kind of popcorn television. It's all about the plot, and next week it will all be about another plot, but the main characters will not change, they will not develop, and nothing will happen with them. Belisario took the complete opposite tack. And what Belisario did was he made the characters important. And in the long run, it's the characters that carry the show, and it's the characters that you remember when the show has gone off the air. And he's a very good and underrated writer. And I wasn't being insulting in the opening when I said his linear writing style. He's copped to this. What he does when he has to write a script, he procrastinates until the very last minute because he's a writer. And then he sits down and he writes interior or opening scene or whatever. And he writes and he just writes from beginning to end. He doesn't write the end first so he knows where he's going. He just sits and writes and invariably, that's the version that we'll end up erring. He doesn't do multiple drafts. That's how he writes his shows. And the Quantum Leap pilot is, considering when you know how he does it, it's incredibly well-structured and incredibly well-put down so that this quite complex idea is explained so simply through the writing and through Bacula's performance. And oddly, Bellasuro didn't direct the pilot episode. David Hemmings directed the pilot episode. So it's quite unusual that he didn't direct it as well. But yeah, the writing is crisp and easily understandable. And it's not like, uh, I love the Six Million Dollar Man, but they go out of the way to not have you think yeah. <laughs> when they're doing their plots. It's like they're deathly terrified of their audience having to think for themselves. Bella Serial takes the opposite tack. He's not, um, he's not bothered about letting the story take time to develop. He's not bothered about having a third act twist that when you look back on it goes, oh, right, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And you follow this all the way through Quantum Leap because it is the perfect anthology show for a television audience because every week Sam doesn't know what the hell he's doing either. And yeah, I think, I think that pilot episode is really good. It's yeah. a, an exceptional pilot. And I also like the fact that when it's explained to you, usually in science fiction shows, when something when 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 the overall point is given to you, it's given to you by somebody who is dressed properly and is very direct, and you know he just spells it all out. You know everything's there. Yeah, but there's a very dry spotlight delivery yeah. to it. Here, it's a hungover Al. <laughs> in a bathrobe if i'm remembering correctly kind of going eh, okay this is how it goes you know just like so it's so human you know it's, it's not and and i think that's why al is you know outside of being the person sam could talk to because uh, otherwise he really you know he has other people to talk to but he doesn't have anybody who knows who he is that he can talk to al is that kind of he is the opposite of Sam, but they're equals, if that makes any sense. Mm. You know, he, you know, Sam is, you know, he, he, he's a nice guy. He's not prudish, but he's not, you know, a womanizer. You know, you know, he's pretty straight ahead. And then there's Al, who had to go into therapy when his best friend le leapt into a woman because he couldn't deal with it. So... <laughs> <laughs> which is it which contradicts the series later because yeah. as we go along we establish that al sees sam as sam mm -hmm. which completely contradicts the episode where he leaps into a woman and al has the raging hots for him well the whole <laughs> a whole you know is is it sam and everyone sees him as somebody else or is sam in the body of the person that's that's like one of those things that carried on the argument over that carried on into like the novels 
where even yeah. they couldn't agree on it. So. No, well, my, my I let that go simply because Belisario said, no, we've never agreed on it either. So yeah, if he can't matter. decide, yeah, because that's not what the show's about, really. So it, it's just, you accept the premise and you go along for the ride. But, you know, I keep making Incredible Hulk comparisons, but the fact that Sam was not only, you know, a, a, a physicist, essentially, or, a, you know, a, he was also a medical doctor. So if the plot called for him for like in the pilot where he has to keep his the, the, the wife of the man he slept into from going into labor, he has to he medically knows how to do that. And while while that could be considered like kind of annoying and it's just like, wow, is there anything he can't do? One, you, you can't need it for the series. Otherwise, things fall apart. But two, it's so easy. It's never really like no one ever really hangs a lantern on it. So you accept it. You just everything about this pilot, you just accept. And the fact that he is surrounded by such great character actors, I, I think helps too. The the guy playing, I think his name is Bruce McGill. Yeah, you know who plays like his captain or whatever it is. He's just so likable. You you like these people. You like the woman that plays his wife. I mean. Uh, Bella, you know, I don't know who did the casting on that pilot, but it was pretty much spot on from beginning to end. Well, Bruce McGill's a, a very well-known character actor. He's now in um, Rizzolian Isles, mm-hmm. but he was in he was one of Belisario's stock actors, and um, a lot of them will show up over Quantum Leap's run, either oh, in yeah. front of or behind the the, the camera. Yeah, it's 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 one of the it's like the Incredible Hulk game where you see where one where, where how many actors can come back in different roles. Yeah, and, and names will resurface as well. Um, the one that stuck out to me as a, a Magnum PI fan, Sam's sister's husband is Jim Bonick. Jim Bonick is the con artist who Magnum thinks looks like Mac, who died in the Ferrari. So I'm wondering. As we go through, are we going to spot more names that, <laughs> that resurfaced? Because Kenneth Johnson reuses names an awful lot as well. I just... The the great thing about this pilot also is that at the end he leaps and then he somebody else. And he takes yeah. care of that situation. And then he yeah. leaps again. And there's a part of me that wished he'd done a little bit more of that on occasion mm-hmm. instead of having one episode take 45 minutes and then he leaps to the next episode i would have liked to have seen one where he leapt maybe two or three times in a show to completely different scenarios but that probably would have been a budget buster in terms of guest stars if nothing else well that and i think it was ten thousand dollars every time al opened the door really uh something like that yeah it was an, it was an, the, the the effects were expensive right because uh, no computers yeah or very very little in the way of computers in the way of computer effects to to be fair but no it was i think it was ten thousand dollars i'm trying to remember of of all the articles and behind the scenes stuff it's probably about right because i'm i'm reading these are the voyages the making of star trek book and regularly they will go through scripts crossing out beam downs because it was something like two thousand dollars a person every time they beam down so there was right do we really need a beam down and a beam up so, so ten thousand pro, and it was five thousand dollars per laser blast on V. So that's why, in some cases, the camera would cut to Sam, and you would just hear the sound effect of the door closing. Yeah, and then Al suddenly the as if by magic. I mean, to be fair, 
again, we keep going back to the Incredible Hulk. Uh, that's why Kenneth Johnson had the white eyes. Mm. So you didn't have to show the transformation. You just knew it was happening. One of the unsung heroes that was not seen all that often, but who I loved when we did see him, because we see him like briefly in the pilot and then only in a few episodes after that, was Gushy. Yeah. Uh, played by uh, the late... Wolfbug unfortunately, uh, Dennis Wolfberg, who I knew from the com- uh, Comedy Central because he was yeah, a stand-up was comedian. A, I was going to say he's a stand-up comic, wasn't he? And he was really funny because he had this kind of, he had this character that he would play on stage that was just really always like this. So to see him rather reserved, like he's flipping out the pilot, but that's just because he's leaping. He's leaping, so... Uh, but you know, in the episodes that he was in, I always kind of, it was always nice to see Gushy basically, even though he had bad breath. Mm. And he's only, he's not in that many, although he's referred to constantly. Well, uh, the same with Ziggy, who was male until the fourth season. Ah, uh, well, time travel changes things. <laughs> right. That was, that was the in-story explanation. <laughs> Sam has changed things so that time travel. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was the great thing about a time travel TV series is that you could change things that are happening in the present based on what's going on in the past. So yeah, the 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 thing with Quantum Leap it was it was the complete opposite of every other time travel series ever. In the they were all about we have to protect the timeline, we cannot change the timeline, and Quantum Leap was no, no, we need to change time, we need to save this guy, and it will change this, and it'll change everything. And And they did that blatantly. And while they they would say God, and there was kind of almost a religious overtone to some of the episodes and and, and what was controlling him, they would always be very clear in saying, you know, whether it's God or fate or time or whatever. So they were never like 100% on what was leaping him around, Mm. which is one of the interesting things that I like about it is that how did, I mean, I know they got a supercomputer and, you know, it's telling them what to do, but really how in the hell did they figure out why he was there? Yeah. Cause it, it implies that Ziggy has access to lots of alternate universe histories. Yes. Like right now, this is how it's happening. There is a certain percentage that you're probably there to change this. And there are a number of times the show played with that magnificently, whereas you'd spend an entire, the the Buddy Holly one in the Mm -hmm. abbreviated first season, where he spends the entire episode doing what he thinks he's there to do. And Al's like, yeah, yeah, you've changed history. This girl goes on to do this and it's all bright and everything's wonderful. And Sam's like, so why have I not leapt then? And Al's like, I got nothing, dude. And it turns out he's there to give Buddy Holly the links to Peggy, the lyrics to Peggy. So yes. <laughs> and the minute that he does that, he leaps. And that kid has been there throughout the entire episode. And if he'd done that pre-credits, he'd have gone. Well, that was another thing the show would do nicely is uh, before Forrest Gump made it popular was to integrate Sam into being there with people who would go on to be famous later. Uh, one of one of the better episodes that apparently has a, a bit of a curse to it. If I, if, if the research I've done, uh, I've, I've heard about it is received. Uh, it was a, I think it was a second season episode where Sam leaps into a horror writer. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Oh, Man. The what? The Boogeyman in season three? 
where Al's there, but it's not Al through the Yeah, I think I think it's that one. I think it's the boogeyman. So apparently that episode has uh, ha- had problems airing and all that stuff, which I don't know if it's true. That could be all apocryphal. But at the end of that episode, the kid that was there at the beginning is picked up by his mom, and it's little Stevie King, and he's dr- he's being picked up in Christine. Mm. So it's stuff like that. I mean, in one episode that we'll be talking about later, uh, he teaches Michael Jackson the moonwalk. I mean, yeah, that's a little silly, but at the same time, I never really minded it all that much. Because no, it was it was cute, so I'm, and it was, it was very rarely the point of the episode. Yeah, it was normally I, little brushes with history. Again, before Forrest Gump made that popular. Yeah, so well, brief season as we've already mentioned, the first season was abbreviated, only had about eight episodes. Some good ones in there. Mm-hmm. Terry Hatcher shows up. Yes, in the very very first episode as Donna Elisa, who Sam will ultimately marry. Although when she comes back, she's not played by Terry Hatcher anymore. Because um, I presume, will she have been on Lois and Clark by that point? Or near to Lois and Clark? No, that was about a year before Lois and Clark. When she comes back, she's played by Mimi Kuzik. Yeah. So she's yeah. not Terry Hatcher anymore, which is sad. Lance Legault yeah. uh, shows up in an episode of the first season because it's not a Donald Bellasario show if Lance Legault doesn't show up. Well, uh, it kind of works that she doesn't come back as Terry Hatcher because she plays an older person. Yeah, she's much older by the time they bring her back. Yeah, yeah. And, um, Bill, stop making sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, David Byrne, stop it. How did I uh, get my here? Favorite, my favorite episode in the first season, but isn't one of my fa- top five. I like playing against Seymour simply because it's a good old down home film noir private detective story. And Claudia Christiansen from Babylon 5 is in it. Wow. Well, my so. two favorites. Oh, go ahead, Bill. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, she's uh, she, she. That was the one that I picked for the one that I liked the most out of the season. That that was the one that stuck with me the most was uh, was that particular one. And uh, but yes, that 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 was like a crime noir one mm-hmm. to where Sam is uh, leaps into a guy that actually looks like Humphrey Bogart. And uh, Al keeps saying. The guy's like Bogart. <laughs> you should see him back in the room. <laughs> and some of the the quote unquote guest stars that are in it is a like a young or, or actually in in story guest stars is a young neurotic Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we also see a actual guest star guest star is uh is it Willie Garson who later will return and play Lee Harvey Oswald. I believe. Yeah, it, he's now. Um, oh, he's now. I can't remember his name in um, White Collar. Well, he's he a safe cracker in White Collar. He was also on Stargate uh, SG One. Uh, he played an. He's alien. the guy who pitches the Stargate television show, isn't yes, he? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, Wormhole Two Thousand or something, wasn't it? Wormhole Extreme or something That's like that. That's the one. <laughs> Those are great. Yeah, another good one in the first season is the Color of Truth, which is not. The only time, but was the first time Quantum Leap will tackle racism. It's driving Miss Daisy for television, basically. Yeah. But it's a great episode. Yeah, my my two favorites from the first season that I kind of picked out were one we were talking about before, How the Test Was Won, mm. uh, where he was going, he, he basically thought he was there to win the heart of this 
woman named Tess, whose father was Lance Legault. Uh, guest stars in that show include Marshall R. Teague, who, in addition to being the astronaut in Armageddon, uh, said this is a kick-ass ride, is also the guy that said, I fucked guys like you in prison in Roadhouse. So, <laughs> um, and I'm watching the episode, and I'm like, is that the dude from Roadhouse? I am dbm.com. Oh, my God. But I, I liked it because it, it was a cute episode of Sam trying to win the heart of this girl, and it just doesn't work out. But my absolute favorite from the first season is Kamikaze Kid, where Sam leaps into this pimply-faced teenager whose sister is about to marry the wrong guy. And there is this scene that he finds out is also smacking her around. And there is a scene where Sam confronts him on it in the one of the most awesome ways possible by you know saying well i saw a bruise on her neck that you get and he grabs the guy and i'm just like oh crap it's about to get real on this front yard okay let's go (laughs) he ends up punching the guy out in the end but it was one of those things where while we had that scene uh they let the sister take care of the situation like she is ultimately the one that leaves and goes off to do what she wants to do so I just and it was a it had a it had drag racing and, and Jason Priestley was in it pre nine oh two one oh Jason just, Priestley just before nine oh two one oh Jason Priestley shows up yeah and so, uh, uh, Robert Costanzo uh, played the jackass's father who is better known to us probably as Harvey Bullock on Batman in the animated series mm-hmm. the great thing about Quantum Leap full of that uh, hey it's that. Guy. Type, uh, type guest stars. So. Oh yeah, the the guest star list in Quantum Leap is full of the the great or soon to be great, and we'll we'll mention some of the more notable ones as we go along. So, the the first season was very abbreviated. It's very much a mid season replacement. It's very much a mid season replacement in terms of like the Incredible Hulk, which we keep comparing it to. At least two of the scripts for this season were just rewritten movies. Yes, which is which is always the sign of a, a series that was rushed into production, and it's a credit to the show that neither of them, The Color of Truth or The Right Hand of God, are bad episodes. You don't have um, a Never Give a Trucker an Even Break episode here. No, they're they're all eminently watchable, and the great thing is is that unlike other seasons, you have a sense of continuity between episode to episode in the first season. Mm, because Bacula's delivering a, an open monologue at the beginning uh-huh. of every show, as opposed to the standard theorizing that one could time travel monologue that appeared at the end of every other one, starting from season two. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, season two didn't have that in its original era. No, no, uh, and if you watch it on Netflix, it doesn't have it either. Oh, right, okay, because that's something... I did catch reruns of this show on Sci-Fi, and it baffled me completely that season two had the, the saga cell at the beginning of it, because season two carries on the season one thing of having Sam explain what he did last week and then he leaps because what the BBC did was BBC two showed the episodes wildly out of American sequence and they would chop the leap from the episode and cut on the leap to the next episode they were showing Hmm. even though it wasn't the next episode. That's weird. (laughs) Yeah. So my memory of what the next episode leap is, is completely different from what you get on the DVDs. Because I specifically remember when we get to season three, they swapped the erring of black and white on fire. 
to the point where we originally thought, well, have the BBC banned this one for some reason? But all they'd done is they'd moved it in sequence. And they did that an awful lot in season two. For instance, as I mentioned, it went off the air to make way for Twin Peaks, which was the hotter show. So when it came back, they refreshed the audience's memory by reshowing the pilot episode. But they'd already shown the first two episodes of season two. So at the end of the pilot, they cut him leaping into Good Morning Peoria, which was the first episode they showed as season two, even though they'd shown Honeymoon Express and Disco Inferno. And then the end of Honeymoon in Peoria, he leaps into the Americanization of Machiko. But because they'd already shown Disco Inferno, we saw him leap into that episode twice. Confused uh, yet? You Swiss cheese in my brain. <laughs> anyway, season two is the first full proper 22 episode season. We get the credits that everyone remembers, which are two minutes long, Neela. Imagine that today. Ugh. A television show with a two-minute credit sequence. One of my top five episodes. I don't think I explained because I'm terrible at this. We've picked five episodes that are our favourites, lovely listener. So that's we weren't going to cover the entire show episode by episode. One of my top favourite episodes is the opening episode of season two, which is Honeymoon Express, which essentially just re-encapsulates what the show is about. Mm-hmm. Sam is leaping into a woman who he thinks... He's leaping into the boyfriend of a woman, sorry, who he thinks he's just there to help her pass the bar exam. And we've got this whole magnificent subplot really giving Dean Stockwell something to do, where Dean, uh, as Al, is in front of a subcommittee hearing to secure funding for Project Quantum Leap, where they're arguing, well, we've got no evidence that Mr. Beckett is back there doing what he should be doing. So why should we give you any more money? And it turns out in the twist ending of the episode that the woman Sam is helping pass the bar exam. Right, that's right. The she woman is the chair of the subcommittee, but that doesn't happen until, until Sam changes history back in 1960. So Sam changes history around Al, but Al, for whatever reason, remembers previous history. Because they're about to rule funding is cut off and Sam's going to be stranded with no guide. And at the last minute, Sam changes history in 1960 so that in 1999 or whenever it's supposed to be, she sits there going, I know Sam Beckett. I met a Sam Beckett once. Securing is granted for another year. And Al's just left sat there going, what just happened? And that's that's the scene that you see in the later credits towards the end yeah, where he's sitting where he in the face. yeah where he just kind of slides back he's in his admiral's uniform and he just slides back and look and he, and he puts his hand on his face and just looks like whoa what just happened i like that one because as i mentioned in the intro i was never really a big fan as a kid of shows that just have sci-fi connection but we're just standard drama shows and quantum leap does fit into that category but this is the first time we saw sam's actions having ramifications on the timeline and i thought that was a really clever twist ending it was another belisario penned episode nobody particular famous in this one i don't recognize any names from the cast list but it's just a good solid reintroduction to the show for people who may not have caught the abbreviated first season i love that one i think it's a brilliant episode and it's a good like kind of locked 
So there's a little bit of suspense and intrigue going on on the yeah, train itself. All, yeah, all of the footage of the train is stock. Yeah. And if there was ever a show on television, and this again is why it was a perfect television show, if there was any show ever in the history of the medium that could pull stock footage legitimately, it was Quantum Leap, as we would see in Disco Inferno. Yes. Whereas we've already mentioned, Sam leaps into the body of a stuntman who is the stunt double on Earthquake, yes. interacting <laughs> with footage of Long Green. And, and, and Al goes, it's Long Green! And Sam's all, I'm trying to not die here, and Al's just completely starstruck by the fact that he's opposite Long Green. <laughs> For me, uh, I, my two favorites from the second season, because uh, I cheated, uh, I chose a, a top five ten square. <laughs> well, uh, I, I kind of did too, but I don't I chose, feel guilty about Whitley. I chose two, but uh, uh, just in case somebody else took one of mine, I would have a backup. So I kind of did the same thing. Uh, Good morning, Peoria, uh, where Sam leaps into a DJ uh, with future uh, opposite future wife of Tim Allen on um, Home on Improvement. Home Improvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a fun episode. We get the, the, one of the things I like about it is that they play with uh, the two episodes I actually chose from this one. Play with what happens to Al sometimes, because when he's on the roof and they, you know, are trying to bring power to the building, Al kind of gets blueified. Like like something happens to his hologram thing, which I thought was kind of cool. But it's just this, this to me is like one of the typical. It's not earth-shaking. There isn't a, a, a great hook to the thing. It's not Lee Harvey Oswald. It's not you trying to set up, like, uh, you know, trying to expose racism. It's just him trying to bail out this this uh, radio station and kind of falling in love with the woman at the same time. Uh, but I also, if I had to pick a favorite uh, outside of the ones that you guys picked, uh, it's um, uh, Another Mother. And I chose this for a couple of reasons. One, I, I really like the idea that Sam leaps into somebody and is helping them by just being the, the parental figure in the situation. You know, the plot is that this kid disappears, but he's having a hard time at school because in the typical 80s fashion, you know, his friends are giving him a hard time because he's not he hasn't had sex yet. There's a girl there that kind of looks like uh, what's her name from Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Red Dawn. Why can't I remember that actress's name? Uh, uh, oh, uh, uh, Jennifer Grey. Yeah, she kind of looks like Jennifer Grey. Um, oh, that woman in Ferris Bueller. Yeah, she was the sister. The one that looks yeah, nothing sorry. like she did then because of the bad the the uh, the emergency nose surgery that screwed her up. That made her look but completely she's married, different. She's married to Clark Gregg, isn't she? Um, hmm. Don't know. So anyway. he's like he's like lucky on several levels. Uh, we get a a repeat cast member in the form of Troyan Belisario, who plays the uh, the talking younger daughter in the episode. She would go on to play Sam's younger sister in the leap home, and she is also the daughter of Donald Belisario. And her favorite TV show in this episode. Magnum P.I. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for for me, this is the episode where Sam realizes he knows martial arts. <laughs> and we get a great 
display of that at the end when he saves his son by beating the hell out of the two. And boy, they cast two scumbags in those roles. That's that's what I think really sold this uh, this part of the episode is that the guys they sold as the uh, the, the the rapists really looked like rapists, and they had the typical rape me van. So it was just, <laughs> but but in the mythology, this is where we learned that children can see out. Yeah, which comes in very useful at various points in the series. But it's so charming to see Dean Stockwell with this little girl. Mm, because as an actor, it must have been quite difficult for him not to be able to interact with the other actors apart from Bacula. Yeah. But you could see, like, he was really having fun in those scenes and showing her little holograms of dinosaurs and stuff like that. So Yeah. Um, keeping it in the family, Another Mother was written by Deborah Pratt, who at the time was married to Donald Bellasario, and I believe his mother to Troy Ian. Yes, and is the voice of Ziggy. Yeah, and she was Morella in Airwolf and TC's girlfriend in Magnum. Wow, she got around. She did, and knowing the writer and producer of those shows probably helped. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. To be fair to her, she is an excellent writer. She wrote one of the best episodes of Airwolf. She writes a number of of the best episodes of Quantum Leap. Yeah, they're... It is not mutually exclusive that she is the uh, the the wife of the creator and a good writer, actress, etc. So yeah, because um, I don't think she ever appeared in Quantum Leap other than as the voice. I don't think I think she'd given in acting by that. But uh, yeah, she's in Magnum and Earwolf. If you want to have a look at her, my other top five pick uh, was Catch a Falling Star. Mm-hmm. From, also from this season Janine Turner and John Cullum were in it both of which would go on to be in Northern Exposure together yeah like the uh, next year I think yeah just shortly after this episode Bellasario directed this one but didn't write it it's 1979 and Sam is an understudy in an off-war Broadway production of Man of La Mancha and it's the episode uh, Scott Bakula gets to show us that he can sing properly and this is where I was like oh Don Quixote I like that and I like it primarily because I saw it in this episode. Yeah, and the, on the this is part of the soundtrack that they released as well. Yeah, I uh, am Don Quixote, the man of La Mancha. They did a little medley of this. What I also liked about this episode was Sam meets up with his piano teacher and gets to live out the fantasy that everybody who had a crush on an older woman uh, would probably want to live out. And gets to make out with her a little bit. It's actually it's it's a sweet episode. Um, I really like John Cullum in this episode as the mm. older the older uh, actor who's kind of drunk off his ass most of the time. Yeah, it's it's a it's a re, it's a feel good episode, which is a contrast to my normal favorites. But it's it's a good one. It's a really entertaining hour. Yeah, and, and this. Bacula- Bacula proves his broad his Broadway strops, uh, chops, doesn't he? Yeah, and the second season really set the formula. Uh, yeah, you know, it kind of cemented everything, which I think I think this type of show needs. I mean, people sometimes criticize shows for being formulaic, and I can kind of see that. But we're in the age of post Buffy, where every season has to have an arc and, and all that. So while it's not my favorite season which is actually kind of a, a running gun battle between seasons three and four. 
Mm, I'm I, pretty much on the same page as you, though. Yeah, I was just like, well, I like these episodes from season... Season 4! Uh, season 4's got these episodes. The If we want to continue with uh, people from other shows being on Quantum Leap, we got to see... Uh, Ma Kent from Lois and Clark be a complete racist in the Americanization of Machiko. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> which uh, which I have a hard time watching because I, I think of Kay Callen as Martha Kent, <laughs> who is who, who who wouldn't who would be okay if Clark brought an Asian bride home. Um, <laughs> Thou shalt not, which has uh, Sam leaping into a rabbi, was an interesting one simply because uh, the thing that my takeaway from that episode is. Al having such a good time at the uh, the wedding. Uh, was it a bar mitzvah or a wedding at the beginning of the episode where he was uh, talking about one of his many ex-wives uh, was Jewish? So I kind of uh, that I, was Yeah, funny. I think it's a bar mitzvah. So uh, that... See, here's the thing about Al that I love as a character. And my friend Debbie was the one that kind of pointed it out pointed it out to me in a later episode she goes he talks about breasts but he never says a euphemism for breasts that's offensive (laughs) and i think that was kind of this i think that was kind of the secret of al is al was a womanizer but he wasn't skeevy about it you know like he was that friend he's like my friend eric who we would be sitting there having a conversation and suddenly i'd see eric's eyes start following something and I realize he's looking at a woman walking by and it's just like you're like dude come back to me okay I'm sorry (laughs) I just scared the crap out of my dog Uh, (laughs) um, though season two did have some episodes did have like the start of the episodes that you're like wow I can really skip this one like leaping in without a net yeah my my least favorite is freedom Uh, anytime any show of this era did the the Native American Indian (laughs) episode. I found them incredibly boring. It's not that I'm not sensitive to the plight. You know, I'm from a country that tromped all over the world and planted our flag and made it their own. But at the same time, God, those episodes are dull. It was dull when the Hulk did it. It was dull when Knight Rider did it. It was dull when Quantum Leap did it. Yeah, the only thing, the only takeaway from this episode is that a shot of them riding their horses... Uh, yep, it's through the thing that ends up in the opening credits. So. <laughs> Do you play that game when you're rewatching old shows or whatever? Yes. A scene from the opening credits comes up, you take a drink. I don't take a drink, but I but I note it in my head, like, oh yeah, that's where that one came from. Because <laughs> me and Ange- me and Angela do it as well with the titles of the episodes. If they say the title of the episode in the show, take a drink. Um, Good night, Deerheart was also really good, where he plays a coroner who uh, has to prove that a woman was murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, W.K. Stratton's in that one. It was another Bellasario well-known face. And Robert Duncan McNeil's in that one as well, who would go on to be Star Trek Voyager. You, uh... Let me just take a second to, to say how impressive I think your ability to pick out guest stars is. Because that's, that's not something I'm geared towards. I mean, Lance Legault's an exception because... Because he he's Lance thing. <laughs> yeah. That, he was in everything at least twice, playing different characters. But to be fair, he was also the McGee character in Werewolf. He was. Uh, which was the Incredible Hulk, a half hour long, with a werewolf. <laughs> yes. So Lance Legault's a little stronger in my head than other day players from Universal. And obviously he's very memorable. Oh, he's got that he's got that voice. 
you know, and he's also the one that makes me laugh in the Captain America pilot every time he goes, are you sure, Mr. Rogers? <laughs> oh, if Lansley goes in it, then I'm, I'm just going to have to watch it. You've never seen the first Captain America pilot? I don't recall having seen any of the Captain America okay. TV movies from the Lance, 70s. Lance LeGault's in that one. And in the second one, the second pilot, the guy that plays Lance LeGault's friend in the Antioch Terror is in it. All right. So they both had to fight Captain America and then get scared by the Hulk. But that's how <laughs> that's my small. head works. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm kind of strange like that. All right. The ones that I, I had picked for the season, uh, the first one is Jimmy. Yes, uh, that was the one where Sam leaps back into a uh, retarded boy who's living with his brother. And this is uh, back in the 60s, I think. Yeah, the early 60s. Right. And, and um, basically, uh, Frank, Frank and Connie are, well... Are are the married couple? Jimmy's the brother of Frank, and he and uh, Frank gives Jimmy a job working on 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 the docks. And Sam leaps in, and and he has to find a way to uh, one to get Jimmy to succeed and to kind of bring Frank and Connie's marriage back together. And basically, what ends up happening is that uh, towards the you know. Connie doesn't want to have to take care of. She considers Jimmy as another child to take care of. She kind of resents him. And what happens is that their uh, one of their other children um, falls into the water. And Sam has knowledge of CPR, which back then would have been a, a new thing. But he, he tells Frank, he's like, I can save her. I can save her. They told me how to do this at the Institute. Um, or No, it's not a girl. It's a boy. Sorry. And... Um, is able to save the life of the child, and 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 then you know Connie kind of sees him as more than just a retarded child, and you know, ta-da, everything is happy and Sam leaps out. But um, it's a feel-good one, and and you know, Sam has to ask Al. He's like, "How do I act retarded?" And he's like, "Well, he has like the IQ of a twelve-year-old. Just act like a twelve-year-old." <laughs> And one of the opening scenes is great because he leaps in and a little boy walks in and, and shoots him with a ray gun and, and Sam just looks at him. He's like, you're supposed to die. And he goes, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> he just slams himself against the wall and then he and he falls. He's like, wow, you died great. <laughs> it's a good it's it's a good one. It's it's. The kids got Down syndrome, which in the 90, early 1960s, they won't have had any clue what that was. Yeah. Right. So it, it's very, very definitely an issue episode, but it's it's a good one. And Jimmy's really likable. And John DiAquano, who plays his brother, was go on to Sequest DSV, is yes. also yes. very likable. Uh, no, no, you're okay. The, the notable thing about this one, Michael Madsen's the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was also in War Games. So, he was, he, he yes. Yeah, so. the, the, the ta- sorry, sorry. The, the two takeaways I have from this episode was, one, we get a little bit of Al's backstory, finding out that he had a sister who was mentally handicapped uh, and ended up, uh, I think she died in the institution. Wasn't her name Trudy? Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. And two, I'm surprised you didn't mention this, Andy. He tells Jimmy 
tells his oh, nephew yeah. the story of Star Wars. Yes, he does. And at the end, oh. when he's doing CPR, he's like, "You gotta live. You gotta, you gotta see Star Wars." Star Wars. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is a great bit. I was expecting uh, to turn out that he was friends with George Lucas. Yeah. Uh, mm. Well, that that would have that would have been on point for the show. Surprisingly. <laughs> now. Yeah. Another thing that is noticeable about that that is notable about this episode is that this will get revisited mm-hmm. in a later season. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll mention that when we get there because you've yes. picked those. Yes, mm-hmm. and I think Mike did too. Oh um, God, yes. <laughs> my backup for this season um, was MIA. Oh yeah. Which that is where Sam uh, leaps into. He's an undercover cop, but it ties in in that he's trying to keep Al's wife from marrying another man until he returns from being captive. Yeah, because Al is written off as being dead. Yeah. And um, as we will see in the episode The Leap Home Part 2, there will be a photograph of Al taken that lets them know he's alive. But at this point, his wife thinks he's prisoner war. She thinks he's dead and she's moving on with her life. And it's implied that that is why Al is the womanizer that he is. Yeah. Because he never got over his wife. Right. And that has the touching scene to where she's pretending she's dancing with Al and he's actually dancing with her as the hologram. You know, he's like in, in, in her arms and he's trying to tell her, you know, wait for me. You know, I'm going to come back. And and that this, too, will also kind of play in a later episode down the road. What I love about this one, though, is that all through the episode, Al is telling Sam to do something. And Sam's like, I don't think that's why I'm here. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And yeah. it's 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 one of those character building episodes where we see one of the main characters who is supposed to be the one keeping Sam on point being selfish mm-hmm. and trying to use it for his own purposes. And that doesn't make Al a bad person. Actually, you feel more for Al because he's doing it, you know. So I that, that's that's one of my favorite. And this has uh, Ray Charles singing Georgia. Uh, <laughs> Which isn't on the DVD, apparently. Of course not. Why would it be? Why would we not pay for the rights? Yeah, apparently they've changed the music. I don't know if that's in the Region 2 and Region 1 version. Greatest American Hero, I'm giving you the middle finger for not paying for the rights. For not shelling out. (laughs) That people say George Lucas ruined their childhood. That DVD set ruined my childhood. Hear me now, O thou bleak and unbearable world, thou art base and debauched as can be. And a knight with his banners all bravely unfurled now hurls down his gauntlet to thee. I am I, Don Quixote, the Lord of La Mancha, my of sin, all your dastardly doings are past, for a holy endeavor is now to begin, and virtue shall triumph at last, I am I, Don Quixote, the Lord of La Mancha, my destiny calls. 
Continue our look at season three through five of Quantum Leap. If you have any comments about this or any of the episodes released thus far, you can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and you can Facebook us on Hey Kids, or one word as the first name, and comics as the surname. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye.